Hello and welcome. My name is Joe Frost and here with my co-host Peter Linus, this is Being Human. Well, welcome everybody. It is a pleasure to have Chris Watkin with us today. Some of you might know him from his latest book, Biblical Critical Theory, and we will come to that. Please bear with us. We're going to explain it. We're going to unpack that a little bit. I'm so excited about that. I'll just confess right up front, I'm a little bit of a fanboy. really enjoyed the book and some of the things <laughs> you've been saying, Chris. So it's wonderful to have you here. But with that, for those who maybe don't know you as well or aren't aware, maybe give us a story or two just to help people get a kind of word picture of who you are, where you're coming to us from. Thank you, Peter. It, it is a huge joy to be here. Hi, Joe. Lovely Hi. to be with, here with you as well. I I guess that the, one of the defining stories of my life is how I came to become a Christian. I didn't grow up as one. I was a happy atheist, I suppose you'd say, as a kid, sort of no God-shaped hole, no need for anything other than what I had, as far as I could tell. And uh, it was on a trip to the battlefield to the First World War that I, as a 15-year-old, was confronted with a huge amount of death and suffering and started asking some questions about that. And that was what set me off being a Christian. So I guess that's an important story to know about me. And I'm guessing in recent years, the other story would have to be something to do with my family. So Alison and our, our two kids, Benji and Emma over in Australia, it'd probably be me cooking two different dinners, a dinner that is adult orientated and edible for Alison and me, probably a nice curry. <laughs> and at the same time, a depressingly bland and uninteresting dinner for our kids because they won't eat anything else. And then as soon as we give it them, they think they're being tortured as they try and eat, you know, whatever vegetable it is, we've cruelly in our parental sort of horror show inflicted upon them that evening. That'd probably be the other story. Wonderful. Well, look, I have warned Joe that she's going to be very lucky to get a question in Edgeway, to be honest, but I'm going to, I'm going to kick <laughs> off and then I will try and behave myself. I mentioned the book at the start, and that's one of your many books, and you might say more as we go along, but Biblical Critical Theory is a big book, and that phrase, and sometimes some of that language might for people go, oh, is that, is, what's he talking about? That sounds very academic. I loved it, but I'd love you to say a little bit more. What is a critical theory, and where do we bump into them? Do we bump into them on a regular basis? There's a broad sense and a narrow sense. The narrow sense, I think, is the one that most people will be aware of today. So when people talk about critical theory in the media, they usually mean quite a narrow set of theoretical approaches like critical race theory, things like that, that, that are getting people worked up on both sides at the moment. But there's a broader sense, which was the first sense that I ever came across, which is just that it's a, a way of engaging with and understanding the world that makes certain things viable. In other words, they become believable for you, certain things visible and certain things valuable. So if you just take an example like Marxism really quickly, you might think that the idea that there could ever be a revolution is just silly, like that, of course not. But then you read a whole bunch of Marx and you can say, oh yeah, I begin to see how that might possibly happen in certain circumstances. So that's not something that's viable for you in your world and that critical theory has made it viable. And it makes certain stuff visible. So you might not have particularly paid attention to the way in which, again, for Marx, the working class are, are, are mistreated in society. And then you read a whole bunch of Marx, you say, wow, the 
working people really do get a, a bad deal. And then certain things valuable. You might value, after reading certain critical theories, the idea of transgressing norms in society, if you really buy into those theories in a way that you might not have thought about previously. And all these different theories, there are many of them, do those things. They make certain things viable or believable in your world. They make certain things visible, so you notice them in a way you didn't notice them before. And they make certain things valuable to you. I think that's so helpful. I know in your book you talk about, you use the same word we do, which is lens. It's a way of seeing and bringing into focus the stories that we're surrounded by and making some a little bit more highlighted in terms of what we recognize and what we encounter. And you also talk quite a lot in your introduction around critical theory and then the biblical understanding around this idea of narration and story. And I was wondering what your thoughts were about this idea of the stories that we inhabit and that we see and how you see them affecting us and how they you see them shaping us. I think stories shape us really profoundly. The issue, I guess, is that there's too much going on in all of our lives for us to pay attention to everything in the same way. I think psychologists have done these studies. We get Our sensors get bombarded with terabytes of data every day. And apparently we can only process about 50 bytes a second, something like that. I've probably got the statistics from it, something like that. So in other words, most of what we experience, we ignore. And we have mm. to, we just can't process it all. So you've got to make choices about what to pay attention to. And you've got to make those choices on some sort of basis. And the stories that we tell about who we are and what the meaning of life is and what we're doing here on earth help us to make those choices, help us to decide what to ignore out of all the things that we could choose to pay attention to and care about. And the very small packet of things that we choose to focus on. I, you came at this through language and into philosophy, into those stories. And uh, what intrigued me is people that I had never heard of when I was studying law and doing my work, something like Derrida and Foucault, but then more laterally going, oh, I think these guys have shaped my life. A little bit, I suppose, of how you came to that, but also I imagine some of my friends going, no, I've never heard of these guys. They don't influence my life. And I'm going, oh, I think they do. <laughs> like, how do they, like, how did you come into that? And how do they influence some of the thinkers that you've looked at? I came into it through my undergraduate degree. So I was doing French and German, but it was a very heavily literature and philosophy based course. So we did Nietzsche, we did Marx again, we did Freud, we did Derrida Foucault and all those people. And I've always been fascinated by them, not really because I agree with what they say, but because they're trying to answer really important questions. They're taking life seriously and they're letting the difficult questions sit with them. And there's a sense, I think, in which there's a real kinship between Christians and philosophers in society in that way. Not that we agree, but that we're two of the few groups, I think it's fair to say today, that are still asking the big questions. Because it's really easy to go through the whole of life today without ever really wondering about anything apart from your next paycheck and whether your family are in good health and what you're going to watch on television that evening. It's a, it's a caricature, but it's hard to find spaces to ask the big questions today. And philosophers, wonderfully, are doing that. And you might, as a Christian, not agree with what they conclude, but the fact that they're taking them seriously, I think, is huge. 
and gives them a certain kinship with Christians who also take those fundamental questions really seriously. So that was how I came into contact with them. And I think for most people, the influence isn't direct, but it's, I don't know, you could call it something like a trickle-down effect. So people like Foucault and Derrida write really complicated books with really complex ideas in one generation. And then that sort of filters out from the academy and journalists get hold of it. And then it gets reworded. Eventually, it sort of seeps its way through society in a way. And so the ideas that Foucault was coming out with in the 70s and 80s about the importance of power and power relations shape the way that a lot of people think about institutions and power and authority today. And people are not quoting him left, right and centre. But those ideas have shaped our sort of instincts about the world, our gut feeling about how things work. And so this idea of this shaping these stories that we may not even necessarily realise that we're in part of, they form and they shape and they influence our worldview, the way we act, the way we think about ourselves, the way we encounter others. You talk about the idea that the Bible can out-narrate some of these stories. But you're very clear to say that you don't mean my God's bigger than your God, my story is better than your story. Tell us what you do mean by that idea. I think it's an idea that I got, if I remember correctly, from John Milbank, the theologian originally. And it, as he presents it, and I think really compellingly, it's the idea that there are certain big stories in our society that all try and explain all the other big stories. So if you take something like psychoanalysis, for an example, it won't just say this is how to understand the mind. It will say this is what Christianity is really about. So Christians will tell you it's all about there being a God and Jesus being God. But the psychoanalysts will say, no, no, no. The real truth behind this that even the Christians don't realize is that we all need a father figure. And so they've projected one up into heaven and they think that their God is real. But so I can explain it to you better than the Christians can themselves. I understand them better than they do. And that's out narrating. And it's not just psychoanalysis. There's all sorts of stories. The Darwinian story does that in some of its guises and atheists will find different ways of doing that. I can explain Christians better than they can explain themselves. And of course, the Bible also does this. It doesn't just tell you that there's a God. It explains the dynamics behind unbelief. And it tells a bigger story in its own terms than any of these other stories within creation, because it gives you a frame that makes sense of everything like psychoanalysis and Marxism and so forth. And that's what out-narrating is. It's the idea that the story that the Bible tells is not just one story alongside the other ones that try to explain our world. It's actually the story within which all the other stories exist and in really fundamental ways can only exist if the Bible story is true. So I love, I think it's on your website, you say you're trying to help people make sense of how they make sense of the world. And it, it feels like this is absolutely where you're going with that point. I mean, this is what biblical critical theory is. Then you're saying we can take the Bible as the lens, as the larger story with it, within which all other stories find their place. Do you want to just say a little bit more on that rather than me, me summarising your 500-page book? You start to unpack. I mean, it's genius. It's brilliant. And I don't mean this in a bit. It's it's simply brilliant, as in it's both simple but very complex what you're doing. But I, I love that, and I'd love to hear you say more about what you were doing in that moment. Thank you. I did use that lens image. In recent months, I've started to wonder whether the lens is the best image to talk about what we're doing. Because the thing about a lens is you put it on and off instantly. So if you're putting on a pair of glasses, suddenly, bang, everything's there. 
But I'm not sure it's quite like that with the Bible story, because it over the years, you learn more about it. You learn to see the world in a richer biblical way. And so I think I've been convinced that a map might be a better image. So you can sketch the main features of a map really quickly. Here's my house. Here's where I go to school or whatever. Here's the park over there. And you're fine. You can sort of get around. But as you progress, you can put in more and more details over time. You get a richer, deeper map of an area. And I think it's more like that with seeing the world in a Christian way that, you know, someone who has very little Bible knowledge just been converted will have a Christian view of the world, but it won't be of the same richness or depth as someone who's been a Christian for decades. And it's essentially going back to Joe's question from a little while ago. It's the story, I think, that's the key. So we sometimes organize our understanding of God in terms of categories, systematic theology, doctrine of God, doctrine of human beings and stuff like that. And that's great. And that's really helpful. But the way in which the Bible really gets under our skin, I think, and we start to, to see the world in terms of it, is when we appropriate it as a story. In its simplest form, it's just creation, fall, redemption. Those three moments. God created the world. Human beings sin and turn their back on him. And God has a plan to redeem the world and people through Christ. And this is what Augustine does just brilliantly in the city of God. And in a sense, the city of God is the great sort of model that I've been trying to hold a flickering candle to. You know, if Augustine is the is a blazing sun, then I'm just trying to trying to shine a little flashlight somewhere near him. And that's what he does. So in the first half of the city of God, he goes through the whole of Roman culture. He does its entertainment and its games, its philosophy, its spirituality, its politics. And then in the second half, he just tells the Bible story. He starts right at the beginning. He goes all the way through and he finishes with the final judgment. And through doing that, he's able to, again, to pick up on Joe's question, to out-narrate Rome, but also to unfold a thoroughly biblical way of inhabiting the world that is really distinct from the Roman way. And I've just become more and more convinced over the years that it's the Bible story that provides the frame to do that, because we live stories. We don't live concepts fundamentally, I think. We live inside stories. And it's no coincidence that of all the ways that, by, that God could have chosen to reveal himself, he's chosen to do so in a way that, that has a story shape. The Bible could have been a list of points. Point number one, you've got to know. God is like this. Point number two, point number three. You know, it could have written it like a, a modern philosophy book, but he didn't. And that's significant. And so really taking on board this storied nature of the Bible, I think, is fundamental to learning how to live as Christians in the world. So we love lens, but also I've heard you, I think, talk about compass and map and figures. So lots of different ways in which we understand because the richness is, is so much. And as a lawyer, my confession is a former lawyer, like the propositional truths probably attracted me initially, but I detached them from story. And I've been absolutely persuaded, I think, as you have, of the importance of story. Um, and so I love that piece. And the entire framing of your book is to take the biblical story step by step and walk us through and then engage with culture, as you say, as Augustine does. Here's the touch points. Let's take that big biblical lens, map, compass, and guide our way through the engagement with the cultural conversation. And 
all of which is a comment to the question. You do a lot of diagonalizing. I think that's one of your absolute key points in the book. How do, so maybe you can say what that is for people, but you often take uh, fully human, fully God. How do we come through and some cultural pieces around that? How does that not become a, what are you doing? Sorry, is the question then, how does it not become the kind of constant compromise? Oh, let's just find a third way through this. As we engage in culture, I think that's a real challenge for many of us Christians, but being a biblical lens, but do that well. Yeah, thank you, Peter. It's, it's a really helpful question. Let's do it through an example, because I think that's the best way to get our heads around what diagonalizing is. So if you think about the, the beautiful picture of human beings in Genesis 1, that we're made in the image of God, there are two elements to that that are in beautiful harmony with each other. There's a great dignity that it gives to human beings because of everything in the whole created order, you know, the most beautiful symphony or artwork or the a forest or, you know, beautiful flock of birds, whatever. None of that's in the image of God. Only we are. Huge, huge dignity. But there's also a, a humbling of human beings at the same time because it's very clear from the language of image of God that you're not God. <laughs> there is a God. You're not him. And your being is contingent on him. You're an image of him. So you're not self-defining and self-sufficient. You rely on something outside of yourself that you're an image of. And that's God. And there's no sense in Genesis 1 that these two ideas of human dignity and human humility are sort of fighting with each other. We're not half dignified and half humble. There's a beautiful harmony to them. But then when you come to the modern world, that modern ways of thinking about human beings tend to major on one of those beautiful truths or the other one. And so some, for example, many people today will say things like, we have to face the reality that whatever we'd like to think, human beings are just basically really complicated machines. And we can dress it up however we like, but there isn't more to us than that. We're very more complex than other machines, but we, we're really just machines. Are we really just animals like all the others? There's no difference apart from the complexity of our brains from other animals. And that sort of captures the humbling side a little bit. It's not a perfect capturing. It's a twisted misunderstanding, but it captures something of the fact that we're not God from Genesis 1. And then you get other ways of thinking about human beings that really do put us in the position of God today. And again, I'm getting this from John Milbank. He has this really interesting line of thought in the, I think it's the first chapter of his book, Theology and Social Theory, where he says, there's this image of God that sort of becomes popular in the medieval period. And it's the God of voluntarism, which means that nothing can stand in the way of God's will. And the voluntarists get really quite extreme about this. So someone like Descartes, who has sort of shades of this running through his philosophy, will say at some point, if God wants you know, two plus two to equal 360, then, hey, he can, because nothing can stand in the way of his will, not even the laws of logic. And Milbank says, we've taken that idea of God and we sort of tried to transplant it into human beings. And so we've got this idea of human beings today who should be able to define everything for themselves. I make my own reality. I define myself, who I am fundamentally. That should be me who does that. And Milbank is saying that's a voluntarist idea of God. We are deifying ourselves when we do that. And so modernity has these two ideas, at least, circulating in it. You're a machine. Oh, and by the way, you're also a God. Now, go away and figure how that works out and just live your life in psychological peace and tranquility. And then the Christian comes along 
in the modern world faced with that situation and says, okay, what are we going to make of this from a biblical point of view? Well, we don't want to split the difference. We don't want to say, oh, okay, well, then perhaps mm, we're half machines and we're half gods. How about that? Is that biblical? Well, no. First of all, it doesn't make sense. What, what does that even mean? And secondly, that's not what the Bible says. And so whatever diagonalization is, and whatever this thing called the third way is, it's not that. It's not splitting the difference between two heretical modern options and trying to meet in the middle. What it is, I think, is saying both the idea that we're only machines and the idea that we're gods are twisted versions of biblical truth. They're half-truths. So let's try and recover the beautiful, harmonious biblical picture behind these two twisted versions of what the Bible says, and not say that we're half machines and half gods, but actually we're made in the image of God. And there's a beautiful humbling in that, but there's also an amazing dignity in that. And so to diagonalize modern anthropology is to show how the image of God is, in a sense, the ultimate fulfillment of what the idea that we're only animals or machines is trying to get at, which is we're not God. We're part of the created order. We're on that side of the creator-creature distinction. And it also fulfills, in many ways, what the people are trying to get to who frame us as gods, which is that there is a special dignity. There's a uniqueness. There's things that humans can do that, that are unique to humans and a status that's unique to humans. But it's not saying Let's just take these two things and stick them together with sellotape and pretend that's a biblical view. I I really love that and I really resonate with that. And Peter and I spend far too much time as it is discussing what it means to be made in the image of God and how that shapes and informs our humanity. So we are all in there. I think one of the things that we've encountered on this journey of what does it mean to be human and how do our cultural stories shape and frame and invite us into a malformed picture of humanity is the issue of sin, of fallibility, of misuse of power and all of these sort of stories that bubble up. And yet sin as a concept is a storyline that is often not welcomed into our space. And yet you spend three chapters chatting about it in your book because it is a fundamental storyline. So, yeah, how do you see our cultural stories navigate sin and how do you see this as an opportunity for Christians to engage critically? Yeah, thank you, Joe. It's right, you don't often see books on the shelves of Christian bookstores, do you? You know, sin, judgment and cultural engagement or how to win the culture for Christ through talking about hell and stuff like that. You've um, just described our second book. It's, it's coming there next. you go. We, we need more like that. But I think it's a real shame because it's such a linchpin of the biblical story. I was talking a moment ago about if you boil the biblical story down to its most simple form, it's probably something like creation, fall, redemption. And if you don't have fall in there, you haven't really got a story. Like redemption makes no sense. What's the point of Jesus if there's nothing to redeem us from and so forth? So sin is really, really important, just biblically. I think sin or a version of sin is really, really important in society. I think we talk about sin all the time, don't we? There are certain things that are almost in a Spanish Inquisition sort of way, forbidden now in society to say. And we're living in a very censorious cultural moment. I think that's changed in recent years. It used to be perhaps in the 1990s a little bit more, oh, you know, well, nobody's got the truth, so we shouldn't be criticizing anybody else. Uh, and now it's no, we very certainly know what the truth is. And we are there 
to make sure that truth is enforced. And if you say certain things that, that are not acceptable, then we will punish that sin. So I think the idea of sin has migrated a lot in society and that that word is not used. But we're a society that has an acute understanding and exercise and practice of what sin is and how to deal with it. And biblically speaking, I think allowing sin to have its place in the Bible's story in the way that we engage with culture is really, really productive. Not, of course, that sin itself is a good thing. You just got to put that put that out there to begin. Yep. Nothing that I am about to say suggests that sin is in any way a nice thing to have in society. We would be much better off without it. It will be a huge blessing when sin is no more. It is not good. Okay. Having right. said that, the fact that we sin has, I think, some collateral benefits if we recognize that fact compared with if we don't. And one of the benefits is that it provides a very robust basis for human equality because it's very clear in the Bible that everybody equally is a sinner before God, including Jesus' disciples. A lot of religious traditions will big up the main leaders, but the Bible doesn't. Like Peter's a fool, John and James, you know, stick their foot in it. David's an adulterer. Moses strikes the rock when he shouldn't. Like no one gets out of the Bible free apart from Jesus. And that's really underlining this fact that everybody's a sin. You can't buy your way out of it. You can't educate your way out of it. You can't be born in the right family to get out of it. It's, it is the great leveler. And everybody, however much money and resources they have, needs to come to God on the same footing of saying, I've got nothing to offer you and I need your grace. And that is an amazingly powerful basis upon which to build a society because it is a fundamental equality that is deeper than all the inequalities. Mm -hmm. So I might have less money or more money than you. I might be healthier. I might have more or fewer opportunities. But all of those are sort of foam on the surface compared to the fact that we both need Jesus and can't do anything about it ourselves. And if you build a society on that basis, you do have a robust rigorous foundation of equality that is not that easy to get if all that there is to us is how much money I've got and you've got now, what my education and yours and all of that sort of stuff. So it's really precious from that point of view. I think it also allows us to have a, a rich and complex view of human beings, I guess, which is the theme of your research and your podcast. Because if you don't have a difference between creation and sin, then the way that we are now just has to be normative for human beings. It's just, there's nothing else. So the way things are now is just how human beings always are and probably always will be to some extent. But as Christians, we can say, from a position of being able to justify this from the scriptures, not just, I'd like, I like this idea and I feel this, but this is how things actually are, that the way things are now is not the way that we were made to be. And the way things are now is not the way that they will ultimately be. And that allows you to track with both, if you like, the cynics in our society and the utopians. Mm -hmm. So people tend to fall into one of these two camps. You, you either sort of fold your arms and sort of rock back in your chair and say, you can do what you like, but people will never change. Whatever amount of money you throw at society, we're never going to fix things. And then other people will run around like headless chickens thinking, if only we get the education system right, 
then we'll bring in some sort of, they wouldn't put it in these terms, but paradise on earth. If we get the structures right, then we can really transform society, make it a wonderful place to live. And the tragedy of modern culture is that you've got to choose one of those. But again, there's something that in a in a twisted way that they're both grasping about reality, but there are other things that they're missing and therefore it's a very lopsided view. But as a Christian, we can say, actually, we are more pessimistic than the deepest cynics, because the deepest cynics will say society is corrupt, all politicians are on the make, authority is just trying to fleece you for your money, and people are hypocrites. And we can say you don't understand the half of it because the problem is not just with the structures and with individuals in society. It's actually a very deep problem ingrained in our hearts. You know, in that old adage, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And if we let that sink in, that is a very dark reality. If that was the only reality, it would be incredibly cynical, incredibly dark. And so in a sense, the Christian story out-cynics the cynics. But, and this is the beauty, this is the wonder of it, it also out-whatever, idealizes the utopians. Because the utopians will say, get the education system right, get welfare right, get society right, the NHS, and whatever else it is, and we'll have a wonderful society. And the Bible comes along and it says, that's just scratching the surface, to be honest, because I, the Bible, I'm talking about justice for the dead. Um, so if you were mistreated in your life, there'll be a resurrection. And everybody who has mistreated another in centuries past will be held to account for what they've done and will receive the punishment for what they've done. I'm talking about justice for things that nobody else ever knew about, things that were done in secret, either that you did in secret, so watch out, or the things that were done to you in secret, so be hopeful. Nobody is claiming that sort of justice in society. Even the most wild-eyed political optimists are not saying that every wrong that has ever been committed in the history of the human race will be brought out into the light and will be judged fairly by someone who understands it perfectly. Mm. Now, that is over-the-top, off-the-scales utopian in terms of our hopes for justice. And the brilliance of the Christian position is that it is both able to track with the worst cynics and say, actually, the problem is a lot worse than you realize. And to blow out of the water, the greatest utopians and say, you've no idea how good this is going to get and how justice is going to roll down like a roaring stream. And you can't have that without the doctrine of sin, either of those without the doctrine of sin. So it's really crucial to the way that we engage with culture, I think, as Christians. So this is where we reach a lovely tension point for us, because I know we both want to land on the practicalities. I have one question on your larger arc, because you've hinted at, you've talked about creation, fall, redemption a couple of times. And I'm pretty sure I've heard you say elsewhere that initially when you went to Revelation, you were like, I need to do this. But then I went, wow. I suppose I want to tease a little on the consummation, new creation that you were just signposting there. Just before we get some practical implications, very quickly, I suppose, <laughs> the implications of revelation and new creation and what you're saying in that framing story because that might be the one bit right go why do you hold the three what about consummation new creation in that four part a little bit teasing on that 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I do in the book talk about creation, fall, redemption, consummation. The reason I didn't mention it earlier is I was just trying to boil it down to the absolute minimum. So the creation, fall, redemption framework. But if you don't have consummation in there, nothing really holds together. So what are we being redeemed for? So what happens? Christ dies on the cross and he's raised from the dead. Okay, so what's that all in aid of? It's a 1 Peter 3.18, isn't it? To bring you to God. And it's that e- eternal life aspect that makes sense in a sense of all that comes before. So you're absolutely right. We need consummation in there. I think what blew my mind about the book of Revelation in writing the book was just how rich it is in cultural critique. So I'd I'd never really understood before that it has a blistering critique in it of, in an immediate sense, late Roman society, but in a sense, all earthly societies in this image of Babylon. It just excoriates the way in which Rome stroke Babylon dominates people financially and also militarily. And it just puts beside this ugly image of Babylon, drinking the blood of the people it's conquered, all of that that really graphic imagery. It puts beside it just this beautiful, beautiful image of the new Jerusalem as a place of peace, right relationship, intimacy, full human flourishing. And it's just, you defy anyone to look at those two cities and think, oh no, I prefer Babylon, actually. (laughs) I would like to be financially and militarily exploited by a brutal regime rather than living in in peace and right relationship with the God who made me. Like it makes everything a no-brainer in a way that I just hadn't really seen before. And it just makes eternal life so, so attractive, like being in the New Jerusalem, so attractive compared to the alternative of living in Babylon. So good. So good. Yes. I, I've i never knowingly preached a sermon that hasn't mentioned Revelation 21 or 22. So I am all in. I But I love that picture of Yeah, the idea is a no-brainer. Okay, as promised, we wanted to land our conversation. We've gone up, we've done the helicopter view, we have seen our world and the stories that form and shape us. And you've challenged us to remember that the biblical story is rich enough, deep enough, nuanced enough, complex enough to contain within it some of the paradoxes and the polemics in our society and in our conversations. So how do we do this? How do we keep the map in front of us? How do we keep the glasses on our face? How do we recognize and keep heading north? What difference does this make in our daily lives? And how how do we start to put some of this into practice? I think there are lots of really practical things that we can do. That the one of the first ones I think would be, you know, go and sell whatever you need to sell to buy a really good Bible overview set of resources and just immerse yourself in the Bible story. So however much Bible overviewing you've done before, go deeper. So if this is something that's completely new to you, you might want to get hold of something like Vaughan Roberts' God's Big Picture or Graham Goldsworthy's Gospel and Kingdom, leading you through the story of the whole Bible. If you think you're pretty familiar with the Bible story, then you might want to do something like grab Nancy Guthrie's audio talks off her website, where she, in a series of, there must be 30 or 40 of them, I can't remember, just brilliant, incisive 
comment on the Bible story and its meaning for culture. So that's definitely one thing to press deeper into the Bible story. I think another thing is, is we can take these tools that the Bible gives us for engaging with culture and work through the issues that are particularly important to us in terms of them. And one passage that I found just brilliant for that over the years, it's one of those Bible passages that in a few verses, it does what books struggle to do in hundreds of pages is 1 Corinthians 1. And what Paul does with Greek desire for wisdom and the Hebrew desire for miraculous signs and power. And just to try and follow through the logic of what he does with those things in terms of issues in our own culture. And it's just such a nuanced, sophisticated, incisive, powerful model of cultural critique. I guess another thing that we can do really practically is to try and, how would you put it, enlarge our, the vocabulary of ways in which we engage with the world. So the Bible is full of lots of different attitudes. And I think we really don't press into them. We've got a much smaller array of ways of engaging with the world. So for example, there's this whole biblical tradition of lament that's there in the Psalms. It's obviously there in Lamentations, clues in the title. And it's there, so you know, in the prophets. And But I don't think we really understand it. So it's not just saying, oh, you know, everything's awful, woe is me. And it's not just, right, we need to go and fix this. It's a different way of inhabiting reality in relation to things that have gone really, really badly wrong. And recapturing the richness of that biblical posture of lament, I think is really helpful. We can do the same with other things like hope, pressing into a really biblical idea of hope. So not a sort of pie in the sky, screw up your eyes and hope for the best hope, but a biblical idea of robust, doctrinal, God can be trusted to keep his promises type of hope. And that shapes a way of engaging with the world. We can do the same with love. I think letting the Bible define love for us and paint for us a very rich picture of love is so incredibly helpful for cultural engagement. And I, now I realize this answer is going on, but just let me say one thing about love. Because it, I think we have a really shriveled, impoverished idea of what love is. And if we take Jesus as an example, he takes the lid off and really expands our idea of love. So we would, I guess, as Christians, all be happy to say that Jesus is the ultimate example of love. He's always loving. If there was anyone who always loved, it's him. And yet we look at the stuff he does, and I'm not sure that we call all of it loving. So his love includes both speaking very gently with the woman at the well and leading her in a, in a really winsome way to a truth that, that he wants her to understand. And it also includes tearing shreds off the Pharisees and calling them a brood of vipers and finger wagging and, you know, it feels like he's shouting at them at some point. And I think we would say, oh, the first one's really loving. Ooh, I'm not sure the second one is loving. So I think our idea of love is really narrow and recovering a full orbed biblical picture of what it can mean to love people, I think would be really helpful for our cultural critique as well. Chris, we could, I, I certainly could, I think we both could happily spend all day and go keep asking you questions. I'd love to explore so many things further. You've been very generous in signposting some other people. I have had great fun exploring your websites and I just want to give you maybe 30 seconds to say, because I looked at both, you, you've got a kind of, I think you call it more academic one, ChristopherWalkins.com, but you've also got one with lots of resources for people who are maybe just taking some steps into this space. Do you want to just say in 30 seconds what those are and then we will wrap things up? 
Sure. So, yeah, as you say, ChristopherWatkin.com is where I put all my academic philosophical writing and reflections. And then thinkingthroughthebible.com, all one word, is where I put Christian talks and seminars and blog posts and stuff like that. And if people hop on to thinkingthroughthebible.com, they can find more things around ideas from biblical critical theory. They can find interviews like this one and other things that I hope will be helpful for people trying to think things through from a Christian point of view. And I'm also on Twitter at DR for Dr. Chris Watkin as well. Chris, thank you so much for your time. I would really say to people, if you're at the more academic end, and that might be lots of our listeners, but if you're heard of Derrida for Cohen others, this that's Chris' specialist subject, and there's a whole rabbit hole you can go down and how you engage in that. It, the Biblical Critical Theory is a, a wonderful book. It is a big book. It's not complicated to read. It's just big and it has big ideas in it, but it's wonderfully accessible. You do need to dedicate some time to it. And then the other website, I've looked through some of the talks in there. So I would want to signpost a few of those and say, We've just scratched the surface and you've been incredibly generous with your time, but there is so much more and go dig. Chris, thank you so much for your contribution in terms of biblical critical theory to the larger conversation. And thank you so much for your generosity and just helping us dig around a little bit about what it is to be human as we engage with some of the cultural currents today. Thank you, Peter. Joe, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you for your wonderful questions. I've really enjoyed discussing these things with you. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Don't forget to like us, subscribe to us and rate us on your favourite podcast platform. Find out more about what we're up to at beinghumanlens.com or follow us on Twitter or on Instagram. We would love to hear your thoughts and comments about the season so far. So until next time, take care and God bless.